Hi there, and welcome to my Productize Yourself course. Uh, I just wanted to start out by saying this is, you know, really, it was initially intended to be just a course, but I've since had the thought that actually I should make this into a community and I should actually connect people who are doing this. There's, you know, at this point, there's 1,600 of you that are embarking on this journey of potentially building a productize service. So I thought, yeah, I'll give you a blueprint, but I also want to connect you guys and set you up to thrive and and just learn from each other along the way. So this is a, you know, a course and a community, and I hope that you treat it as such. But for me, this is something that I've been putting off for many, many years. Uh, I've been doing, you know, tons of coaching calls and helping people on a one-on-one basis, but I always had this desire to do this at scale, and so this is that. Now, in order to actually accomplish this, I had to do it in a certain way that isn't uh, too typical. So the majority of these lessons, to be quite honest with you, are going to just be audio recordings of me talking. It's going to be a similar style as if you and I were sitting across the coffee table from each other, and I was basically sharing my blueprint for how I built DesignJoy. Now, a lot of it, a lot of the examples, all the information is centered around my own service and my own experience, but I've tried my best to make every little, every piece of this applicable to no matter what you do. So some of you are not going to be designers. Some of you are going to be developers and some of you are going to be content writers and video editors and podcast editors. All the information here, I would say at least 95% of it is going to be relevant to all of you. It's just that a lot of the examples I reference DesignJoy because I've, I've lived it, but pay attention and, and, and take to, you know, take what you can out of it and apply it to your situation. I don't think a lot of people who run courses do a well enough job at this, of, of putting this up front, but I think, you know, at the end of the day, you should think for yourself. Not everything is going to be applicable to you here. And there might be things and parts of this course that you're more interested in others. Some of you are going to go through every single lesson and listen intently. Others are, you know, just looking for how I set up my Trello and you're going to jump straight to that video and take it and go and go build it yourself. And that's fine. I think However you want to go through this course is up to you. And you, you know, I've tried to make it short. I've tried to make it brief and, and to the point. There's not a lot of fluff here. I haven't focused on production or making it as long as I possibly can. I don't think length of a course necessarily equates to value. I think the information I provide you at the end of the day is really what matters. And that's what I've tried to center my focus around. And if I hadn't done that, if I had focused on production or making it long, I would have never gotten this out in the first place. So I thought it was more important to just release it to you so these are raw, kind of unedited, just clips of me talking and sharing my personal experiences, and you should just take what you want from it and disregard what you don't. But I hope that you enjoy the course. I hope that it inspires you, and I hope that it sheds a lot more light on how I do what I do and why it's actually possible when so many people claim it's not. Um, I hope that you just get inspired and I hope that you can see for yourself that this is something that you yourself are capable of doing and completely changing your life in the process. So without further ado, let's There's jump so in. So many reasons why I believe product-based services are such an attractive and intriguing model to so many people. I mean, just take this course, for example. At the time of this recording, there's been about 1,600 people who have bought the course which really speaks volumes to how big of a deal this is. And again, just how intriguing it is to so many. So for the sake of this conversation, let's kind of forget about the dozens of benefits that exist for those that actually 
consume these type of services, so your clients or companies. And let's just, again, for the sake of the conversation, focus in on what's in it for you and I. But before we get there, let's define exactly what a product or service is so that we're on the same page. So to me, I define it as selling a fixed scope of work for a fixed price. So in other words, it's like, you know, how you sell a physical product. You can go to the grocery store and let's say we're buying an apple. You can see the apple on the shelf and you know exactly what it costs and you can take it home and consume it right away. So in the same manner, I've sold design and others sell other type of services this way as well. Um, And the beauty of it is it can be sold over and over and over again. Again, much like physical products can. And the consequences that this has on your business is uh, totally game-changing. First off, the one that I'm perhaps the most proud of and the most excited about is the fact that I don't have to ever bill hourly again. I never have to chase down payments again. If you've ever run an agency or ever done any freelancing work, you know that this is probably one of the biggest pain points of doing those things, doing work for people and then having to chase down the money for said work. But with private services, payments are all made up front and it's guaranteed and the amount is already defined. Most product services bill month to month uh, and customers are kind of free to come and go as they please. Some, like my own, offer quarterly and annual plans as well. Uh, But not having to write proposals and quote projects and write up contracts is just such a huge time saver. Automated billing, again, not having to chase down money results in just that much more revenue for your business that's guaranteed. And then the recurring revenue piece is really where where, what it's all about and who wouldn't want that. It's also uh, important to understand that you're responsible for defining your business and sticking to it. So when clients come to you, you have to view it as, you know, it's a take it or leave it type of thing. If clients don't like the way you do X, Y, or Z and don't agree with your model, they can go somewhere else. They don't, have to use you because the second you start changing processes or tools and believe me you will be tempted to do this in order to please a client right then and there you're less of a product or service and it gets increasingly difficult to scale and manage at design joy i've developed over the years a pretty strict policy on this i don't change a single solitary thing to win over any client no matter who they are or how much money they have If clients want me to design in in Canva versus versus Figma, I tell them no. If a client wants their request done in a day instead of two, I tell them no. If a client wants me to use Asana over Trello to manage their design request, I tell them no. So I think you get the point. And the thing is, it's going to be tempting because these, these clients think of these things as very minor things. But what they don't understand is just how process driven your service is and how much your, your service relies on process. Cause I may, I used to make exceptions and You know what would happen? Things would slip through the cracks. I'd forget that I made that one special exception for that one client and it'd come back, bite me in the butt. And I had no one to blame but myself because I accepted it. I accepted the exception. Um, But because product and service are are just so process-driven, they literally thrive on process. It's the only way that I'm able to run design joy the way I do. But again, I'll warn you, you will be tempted the first few times this happens, but don't give in. Something else that's worth mentioning here too is because your services are defined up front, it really, really changes the type of clients you work with and the type of clients that you draw in. Especially if your website does a really decent job of outlining your services and how you work. 
you'll right then and there weed out any bad clients, or at least mostly weed them out. And I like to think that I do a pretty good job of this, especially after having so many years of refinement in conjunction with the 15-minute calls that I have with prospects looking to join DesignJoy, which we'll get into later on. And because I do a really good job of finding what I do, clients aren't really surprised when they sign up and they ask for a meeting and I say no. Uh, they usually don't ask for it in the first place. Um, they aren't surprised to know that requests take a couple of days and they aren't surprised to know that I won't add them on Slack or design in Canva. Uh, because I do these define these things up front, they agree to them when they signed up for design join in the first place. And I kind of look at my own website as sort of like this shield protecting me from, no pun intended, joy-sucking clients and only letting in those that agree with the way I work. This makes your life as an agency owner or freelancer so much easier because you ultimately have to deal with far fewer difficult clients and you know how painful that can be. And this is a really beautiful Many thing of you are this. probably wondering where in the world I came up with $25,000 per month. Did I just pick it out of thin air? Especially if you know my past and the fact that I make quite a bit more than that, Design Joint have made many multiples of that in the past. Why wouldn't I be teaching you how to make a million dollars a year or $2 million a year? I've done it, so why wouldn't I be teaching you how to do it? The simple answer is that I don't want you in a in a, in in that position at all. That you know, it sounds great on paper, and you think in your in your own head that anything's got to be worth making that much money. And I can tell you from my experience, it's definitely not. So I, I've I've basically constructed this course to teach you how to build a business that allows you to actually still do the things that you love to do and to spend time with the people you love to spend time with. And also make an absolute killing. I mean, let's be honest, $25,000 a month to most of you is going to sound like a freaking dream. Like I, I wouldn't even be, I wouldn't, I'd go so far as to say a lot of you probably don't even believe that it's actually possible to do. And that's why I'm here. I'm here to prove you wrong, to show you a blueprint and a path to get there. And I know that sounds super snake oily and scammy. I understand that. There's not really a way to go about this that doesn't appear that way, but I'm living proof of this. There's nothing that I'm going to hold back here. Uh, there's nothing that I'm going to keep a secret. I'm basically going to show you the exact blueprint that I've used to do this, but do it in a way that maintains your, your sanity. And that's something that I did not have the, the foresight into doing. I went through the worst of the worst, and um, I'm going to help you avoid that by giving you a simple blueprint to get five clients a month, charge them $5,000 a month, and make $25,000. That's that's the that's the calculation here. That's how you get to 25,000 a month. And a lot of you, even if you're a little bit in, insecure, unsure of this process, you can hopefully at least see yourself getting five clients. I mean, it's not that much. There's 8 billion people on the planet. There's got to be five people out there that need what you're what you're offering. And you may not start at $5,000 a month. You may start at $2,000 a month and work your way up there. I have a whole section dedicated to that. But at the end of the day, I want you charging no less than $5,000, working with five clients and maintaining your sanity and, and giving you a life of freedom and financial freedom all at the same time. That's the this goal. Part of the course so hopefully that is makes sense. probably due to get some mixed reviews, but as always, think for yourself and make your own decisions. So as most of you already know, I'm a solopreneur. I haven't been shy about that. I've made the conscious decision to run Design Joy alone and have been doing it for many, many years. And it's been great. I personally wouldn't trade it for any other way. 
But at the same time, <laughs> it's definitely has has its own challenges. And I'll admit, I have not been super transparent about both sides of the coin. So I'll write my wrongs and do just that. But first, I want to start with the advantages because there's a lot of them. For me, the drive to work alone stems from many, many, many different reasons. Perhaps the biggest being the low financial risk that is involved in you know, a solopreneurship. Because I don't have employees, the age-old fear of not making payroll each month just doesn't exist. And that means that my expenses are low and I don't carry the stress of supporting other employees or people. I get to wake up every morning, worry about myself and my family, and that's it. Going solo in the same token is also just far more lucrative for those same reasons, or at least it can be. Uh, Thanks to being the only employee of DesignJoy, I get to keep every dime that I make. And because my expenses literally only amount to four or $500 a month, which is pretty much just a few tools, uh, I I make a pretty darn good living. And I won't lie, that aspect is quite nice. Uh, I also get to have full control over DesignJoy. I get to decide what I work on, when I when I work on it and how I do it, I don't have to consult with anyone else or worry about how it affects them. Making decisions and being agile is way easier when there's only one cook in the kitchen. But like I said, as great as these things are, there's many arguments to ro- not running your service this way. Like I said, I start at the start of this course, you don't have to do exactly as I've done and sometimes there's valid, very valid reasons not to. First off, working solo means you're obviously doing all the work yourself. And I'm not going to lie, there's times when I wish so badly that I could just, you know, pass off work to some other designers, especially on days when I'm not just, I'm just not feeling it. But I don't have that luxury. And in the same vein, taking off time or taking time off is pretty much impossible. If I take time off, I mean, who's going to do the work? There's no employees to offload the work to, so the work falls on your shoulders. This is probably one of the hardest aspects of running Design Joy, because in a way you start to feel trapped. And I guess that's a good thing for my case, because I really enjoy what I do and I'm fine being trapped in it, at least for now. And perhaps most obviously in terms of scale, Like with a team, the sky is really the limit. But solo, there's only so far you can go before you hit the ceiling. And I think I've done a pretty good job at stress testing just what's possible going solo with this model. And I feel like I've done pretty well at it. But it's, it's true that if I made the decision to build a team, and I can't deny this, I could have taken Design Joy way further than I would have alone if that was my goal. It doesn't mean it wouldn't be less stressful because I think there's this common misconception that hiring a team subtracts stress from your life. But if you've ever talked to anyone that's done it before, it's it's definitely not the case. But there's no question at the same time I would have been able to take on more clients and probably done a better job serving them. And lastly, I'd be lying if I said it didn't get a little bit lonely running a business alone. Most of us including myself, have had some experience with working with a team. And I'd be lying to you if I've said there wasn't a big part of me that misses that aspect. Being part of a group working towards the same goal is super fun. And it's for a lot of you. 
because it can lead to new ideas, new perspectives, solutions to problems that you may not have thought of on your own. So ultimately, at the end of the day, the decision to go solo or build a team out at the start is up to you and is determined by just how you're built as a person. Some of us are built to thrive alone, like myself, and some of us are built to thrive within a community setting. There's really no right or wrong answer here. You can make it either way. Just me personally speaking, though, I wouldn't trade being a solopreneur for anything because it fits my personality and what I want my day-to-day to look like. But again, at the same time, I made it pretty clear. It's definitely not without Having a social media following is sort of like, it's like a cheat code. If you can pull it off and actually build a somewhat sizable audience on a platform like Twitter, you can really use it as a launch pad for whatever you build in the future. And you can gain traction just so much faster than you could without it. And I mean, look at you. You probably discover me or this course from Twitter, I'd be willing to bet. So can it be helpful? For sure. And even more so if you know how to leverage it effectively. But it's not necessary. Now, does that mean you have to get more creative with getting the word out that you or your startup even exist? Sure, it's not as simple as just publishing a tweet to 30,000 followers on Twitter and landing your first clients within just a few minutes. And I think a lot of people are surprised by the fact that I didn't have a social media following until early last year. Um, At that point, I'd run DesignJoy successfully for about five years and Not only did I not have a social media following, I barely used it at all, even in my personal life. Proving the myth that you need to have a following, totally false. So if I didn't have a social media following, what did I do? Well, we'll get into a lot of this later on in the course, but just to name one right now, I joined a few free communities. And communities like Facebook groups and Discord service and and Slack groups, they aren't run by algorithms. So they're chronological. Most of the time, they're open to everyone, and there's far less noise on them than other platforms that others might use. This means that because they're chronological, that when you do publish content on these platforms, the likelihood of that piece of content getting at least some attention is pretty high. Whereas on Twitter, believe it or not, you could have a half million followers, but if the algorithm doesn't favor you, you could reach literally a mere fraction of that amount. And you can see this all the time. So yes, having a following is really, really nice. I have to admit, I mean, it's done amazing things for me. I can't deny that. But it's not the only way. Now, joining a community is one of the many things we'll get into again later on in the course when we start talking about how I gained my first clients because it did play a huge role in that. But the important thing to note now is don't be discouraged if you do not have a social media following or if no one knows your name. Trust me, if you do these things right, this is one of my favorite things to talk about because I think there's such a big misconception in the startup space that building a startup has to cost a lot of money. And, you know, so many people think it's so expensive to build and launch a startup these days because of the technology that's involved, um, especially if you're a start- software company. I mean, you've got to design and build technology or you don't have a business, and that typically involves people in lots of different roles and it can be very expensive and not only that it takes a lot of time it's a it's a big risk and that's before you even know if the thing will sell service-based businesses on the other hand are much different most of the time you don't need custom technology to start one and if you're like me you can start doing all the work yourself so it's pretty cost-free that's what i did at design joy and that's actually what i continued to do six years later
When it comes to actual technology, I use something that already exists, which is Trello. In fact, I use the free version of Trello. I don't even pay for it. This allows me to run my business and manage design requests from dozens of clients at a time. Totally free. Now, would it be nice to have a custom platform centered precisely around exactly the way I run things in DesignJoy? Yeah, I've been tempted by it before. I've even looked into it and designed a couple of things. Uh, and some of my competitors have done the same thing. So the answer is, yeah, for sure. It would be nice. But it would quite cost quite a bit of capital, take up a lot of my time, and more importantly, it'd be just another thing I have to manage. It's just so much easier to piggyback off of companies who do this for a living. And we'll get more into this in a section of the course that talks about the tools I use specifically. Um, but I do see a lot of companies, especially product or services, make this mistake of thinking they need this expensive, tailored solution to handling client requests and they couldn't be more wrong. So once you have a, your tool or tools in place to intake requests, you need a website. Again, depending on your own expertise, this can vary in cost. I'm luckily a designer and I know Webflow, so this the only cost associated with launching my site was a Webflow platform and hosting fees, which at the time cost me 29 bucks a month. And being that that was my only expense, you could say that's what it costs to launch DesignJoy. But I know some of you aren't a designer and developer, you're going after a different type of service, and you're not you know, willing to at least learn the development piece with a platform like Webflow or Framer, this will definitely be your biggest expense, and it should be. But there's, win there's definitely ways to minimize the cost depending on where you look for talent and how large your site actually is. DesignJoy is a multi-million dollar plus year service, and it's a one-page site, so... Don't buy into the facade that you need to have this big bulky thing that's super expensive and there's a lot to it. This should help alone drastically reduce costs when building out your own site. Now, besides startup costs, marketing tends to be up there as well when it comes to the high costs you typically associate with launching a service. And I'm happy to say I've never spent a dime on marketing. No paid advertising whatsoever at any point in time. I've just leveraged tons of free platforms community and communities to grow Design joy to a point where it's pretty much self-sustaining at this point. There's nothing that's needed on my end to go see clients. They just come to me every day. I'll save this for its own section in the course altogether versus diving into it now. But you should be able to launch Design Joy or an equivalent of, I would say, under $1,000. And under $100 if you're fortunate enough to be doing what I'm doing. But even $1,000 is ridiculously cheap to launch as full-scale startup, um, especially if you're one day going to make you know, $20,000, $25,000 a month. So don't get scared because um, that's literally the only thing right, right now standing in your way from now, again, doing this. This part of the course might get some mixed reviews. But I need to take a moment and debunk a pretty common myth within the startup world, and that is that you need to quit your job in order to build a startup. And I think a little, a little bit of this is society that, that puts the pressure on us. And I, I know that I felt this for many years that, that if my startup was so, so successful, why, why wouldn't I quit my job and just go 100% on it? But the fact is you don't have to. That, that couldn't be the further, it couldn't be further from the truth. But at the same time, you see entrepreneurs fall for this literally all the time. They're all over my Twitter feed. And they put themselves in some really, really tough situations financially but 
here's my take on it. Quitting your job should be seen as a milestone to achieve and not at all a jumping off point when you start building a startup. And I think there's many valid reasons for this. First off, I don't know if you know this or not, but building a startup is freaking hard and it can take a lot of time. And let's just look at DesignJoy as just one of many examples. And I've shared this chart, I would say three or four times on Twitter over the years. Um, Not over the years, I guess, on Twitter, but other platforms. I've I've shared it for a long time. And it basically shows my my traction over a five-year period. In the first three years, at least on the chart, it looks like it's basically zero. It's flatlined. In reality, it was about four to seven thousand dollars a month. Um, but comparatively speaking to where I am today, or where I was, especially where I was a year ago, it looked like nothing. So it took me a good three years to get to the point where it was something that was sustainable and made me more money than I was making at my other job. But I have no regrets doing this, and if I had to do it over again, I'd do it the same way. Because the truth is, having that steady job was key to me. It, it provided just this abundance of headspace to build design joy and to build it comfortably. And I was able to take desperation out of the equation. It was never a do or die thing for me. And honestly, it was really nice. And I think design joy and my mental health was way better off for it. Because for many entrepreneurs, it's, it is do or die. They're literally forced to build as fast as they possibly can because they're quite literally running out of money to eat on. That's why so many startups have to raise all kinds of capital and in turn take on insane amounts of debt, which translates to insane amounts of stress. And I don't think that's wise. And oftentimes you end up making some very poor decisions, again, just based out of pure desperation. In the same token, keeping your day job provides you so much more time to validate your service. Finding the right market fit, the right pricing, the right offer. You need as much time to do these things as, as you can and you don't want to rush them. So the main question is, when is it time? When is it time to quit your day job and dive 100% in on your startup? And the answer to this question is that there is no simple answer. It's going to look different for everyone, but I can tell you it's not just a math question, or at least it shouldn't be. Sure, you need enough funds to support yourself for X, X amount of months, depending on your situation and so on and so forth. That's what all the articles will tell you. But it's also a kind of a feeling, at least it was for me. Because the math, <laughs> if I looked at the math alone, it told me for years that I should quit my job and go full-time on this. But, you know, after all, I was making many multiples what I was making at my full-time job anyways. But it was kind of weird. I, I didn't feel comfortable quitting. And I think it was, at least in my case, probably because I experienced so much success relatively quickly. And I liken it to sort of like a shooting star. It just happens so quick and then it's gone. And I felt like the same thing could happen for Design Joy. So it didn't really matter how much I was making. If I was making $200,000 a month, it still wouldn't have felt real to me. Because I wasn't sure it was going to, or confident that it was going to last long term. So I kept my job perhaps way longer than I needed to. But the thing is, I could. I mean, I literally did all my design work for that company during my Zoom calls that I had with my coworkers, and I worked on Design Joy. Otherwise, it wasn't imposing that badly on my startup, at least not to the extent that it was outweighing the benefits that I received. So I ran it this way for a long time, and about three and a half years in ish, I remember looking back and 
I finally had the urge to quit. It was the feeling that I have been seeking forever for many years. And I was like, I'm just going to jump on in 100%. And that was a good feeling that like I felt zero risk in doing it, which is I think something that most entrepreneurs cannot say. Usually when you make that decision to quit your job, it's a little bit of a risky one. You're not sure exactly how it's going to work and you're just kind of faithful and, and trust the process, but it's never really comfortable for most people. And some of you are, you know, you find yourself in a similar position where, yeah, you're hired to be working 40 hours per week. You're a salary employee, but you're really only working 10, 15, 20 just because you're really good and fast at what you do. You're the ideal perfect candidate for this. But on the other hand, some of you don't have it that easy. Some of you have very demanding jobs that require a lot of your time, a lot of times even more than 40 hours per week, whether it's just raw work or maybe you're just in endless meetings. For those of you that fall into this particular category, get ready to hustle. Now, all of that to say, there will come a time when you do need to go all in. That time is inevitable because there's so much power in it. And I truly believe that. I mean, I experienced it firsthand with DesignJoy, if I remember correctly. My revenue it literally doubled just a few months after going full-time. And if it didn't double, it came pretty darn close. So it just speaks to how impactful focus can be on your business. And I don't want to diminish that. But my point here is this. Just be patient. Take full advantage of your day job and the security and the benefits and the salary that it provides you. And use it to help fund your startup. Look at it that way. And use it to help provide you the security and the headspace to build at a pace that suits your lifestyle and suits what you're comfortable with. Because again, you and your startup will be so much better off for it. Um, And that's that I never, never work for free. Uh, But it wasn't always this way. So funny story, when I launched DesignJoy, one of the sort of the catches that I wanted to try was offering free tasks prior to signing up. So you just had to fill out this little type form, tell me what you want. And the idea was that I would take 20 minutes of my time and give it to you and hopefully convince you that this thing actually produces, you know, good design work and, and then ultimately convince you to sign up. Nowadays, uh, knowing what I know and having experienced that, it was a completely ludicrous idea. But I did have probably hundreds of submissions um, that came in all at once and I started out doing as many as I could I spent that's the majority of the time that what what I spent my time doing when I first launched DesignJoy and um unfortunately nine out of ten of them probably even higher than that if I'm being honest never really resulted in anything they never signed up they would just take it and they wouldn't even respond um and they'd run away with it I also at the same time launched with a 14-day money-back guarantee, which is what a lot of other product services do, which meant that you could, in theory, as a client, sign up for DesignJoy, use it for a couple of weeks, and in that time, get some branding done and perhaps even a website, and then you could request a refund for that work and uh, go about your way. And then what would happen is uh, I, would, I would look them up a little bit later and see it all live. Uh, And this was extremely irritating and frustrating. Um, I was very naive to the fact that there were so many people out there looking to just take advantage of the service. So I eventually said, I'm not doing that anymore. 
It's going to be no more refunds, no more tasks, no more trials. I was confident enough in what I was doing and delivering that I was willing to put the risk on the client and never put myself in a position again to potentially do free work for people. Because it was draining. It was disheartening. It was wasting a lot of my time, which at the time was very valuable because I had a lot of paying paying clients, dozens of them willing to pay me what I was worth. And then I had all of these other people just trying to take advantage of me. I would suggest don't making this don't don't make the same mistakes. Service-based businesses are much different than software. You don't need to offer trials, especially free trials, and you don't even need to offer refunds. This cuts out a significant port, portion of the market who really aren't taking you serious in the first place, but maybe they just see you as a quick and easy way to accomplish a goal and get an asset and then move on. So you have to really stick to your guns here. Now, that is to say that I'm not 100% a stickler on this in certain cases. Like if a client signs up and within a week or two weeks, maybe they realize it's not a good fit for them. I'll oftentimes refund them for time remaining in their subscription, but this is the key thing that I want you to, to remember. Never refund people for work you've already done. It's one thing to refund someone for work not yet completed, but it's a whole other thing to refund them for work um, that you've already executed. I think this is a pretty good rule for all of us to live by, even outside of product services. So you just have to respect yourself to enough to like realize that your skills and talents are worth something. They're not worth nothing. And you've got to have the confidence in, in what you're doing is, is, is valuable. And um, the decision the to uh, niche down or not is a pretty important one because the consequences can be either positive or negative depending on how you do it. Let's first answer the question, do you actually need to niche down to be successful? And the short answer is definitely not. But at the same time, there's obvious benefits to doing so. So we'll talk about both. First off, you know, by niching down, you can automatically cut out a lot of your competition. In today's market of practice services, there's quite a few popping up. It seems like there's new ones every day. And especially after this course is released, there'll be many more in the works. But at the same time, we're still many, many years, at least in my opinion, of way from the market being oversaturated with them, much like traditional agencies have oversaturated today's market. But at the same time, it's still important to differentiate yourself in one way, shape, or form. And while there's many ways to do this, which again, we'll get into later, owning a particular niche is one of the most effective ways of doing it. But cutting down the competition is really just a start. You can also have uh, you know, a ma massive opportunity to increase efficiencies when you work with one particular type of client. So let's imagine for the moment that you run a product or services targeting a specific niche. Let's say gyms, or maybe it's even a sub-niche of gyms, which is, would be, let's say, CrossFit gyms. Every asset that you create for one gym can be repurposed for another. Again, in one way, shape, or form, instead of recreating the wheel every time. This ultimately allows you to get way more work done far more quickly and take on more clients and make more money. You could, over time, theoretically generate an enormous library of assets that require minimal tweaking in order to apply them to a, a brand you know, or new client. This takes a product or service really to the next level, but 
This level of efficiency can only be achieved when you niche down. A good example of this to look up is ChurchCo, which is a practice agency that does websites for churches. They've built a handful of templates when they sign a new client. 90% of the work is done. They just need to duplicate it and, and personalize it to some degree, and they're done. Now, on the other hand, let's talk about DesignDoy, which is kind of the opposite of this. I didn't really niche down, at least at the start, because when I launched DesignJoy, I really didn't know who it would attract. I didn't know who this model was for. It was a total shot in the dark, and I thought, what the heck? I'll just see who bites. So I cast a wide net because I needed clients. I was desperate for them. I didn't want to sort of block myself off from anybody. I would have taken literally anyone at that point. And I thought, I could always refine things later. At the same time, I wasn't even that in love with a particular niche anyways. And quite honestly, I really appreciate and value variety in what I do. I get pretty bored working on the same types of projects over and over again. So if you're the same as me, you might want to consider staying away from a niche. Over time, though, I would say that I've definitely fallen into a bit of a niche in terms of the type of clients that I work with. Although it wasn't by design or by choice, it's just the communities of which I've been known in, which for me is SaaS and design agencies. But you won't find really any content on my site really targeting these type of people. Um, it's, I think, again, it's simply the circles of which design has become popular in. And my website definitely leaves open the possibility of really anyone signing up. And that's the way that I like it. Because once, every once in a while, I'll get like this random client doing this random thing, and those clients tend to be the most fun. So not niching down for me has, in turn, opened up possibilities to work with some clients I never would have dreamed of and brings a level of variety in my day, which I really appreciate. But if you do have a particular passion, which many of you do, that you're obsessed with or they're just passionate about, I'd say go for it. Maybe for some of you, it's nonprofits or churches or educations. I've spoken to people personally doing this exact thing. But also know that not anything you do can be undone. And there's also another thing that you could try. So you can come up with a generic name for your service, design a really, really solid high converting landing page centered around a particular niche. You could duplicate that and target another niche instantly. Just swap out some copy, show some relevant work, and you're set. You could own several niches, really an infinite number of them, using the same infrastructure and I've spoken to people doing this too. I've had them as clients. So do what's best for you and you can always adjust if needed. But if you're on the fence, start broad, figure it out as you go along. Some of you might just think like of a niche sort of like positioning. For the sake of this conversation though, though they bring about similar consequences, they're two very different things. Think of your niche as the industry you work in and positioning as how you actually fit into that industry. So right off the bat, there's several ways that you can position your product or service. So let's start with the first one, which is pricing. So pricing strategies differ across product or services and for good reason. I think the majority of them today do lean towards the cheaper side. Like some of them are ridiculously cheap, like they're leaving thousands of dollars a month on the table. One example of this I think is Pingy. Um, P-N-G-J-I is, is how you spell it. They're a popular design service like DesignJoy. And at the time of this recording, at least, they charge about $500 a month for, you know, quote-unquote unlimited design. And in turn, I think that they definitely attract a certain type of client. Now, it's not the type of client that I want. I don't have any desire to work with these type of people. But 
it's working for them. They've built a very profitable, big, big business that makes many times more than DesignJoy makes. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, you have DesignJoy. I charge 10 times what Pinji charges. And again, I, track, I attract a very different type of client than Pinji. And I doubt there's any overlap whatsoever based on the price. So we'll get a ton more into pricing at another portion of the course. But it's important to understand that pricing does play a huge role in how you're positioned against the competition. And you can really, really reap some very favor, favorable consequences because of it. Another way to position your, yourself is simply through the type of work you do or even the type of work that you promote that you do. Now, for the sake of this portion of the lesson, I'm not talking about quality yet, but more so literally the type of work you do. In my case, it's like websites or presentations or whatever. So let's look at Design Pickle. Again, they're a, another design subscription service similar to Pinji, but they're perhaps the largest. Um, I think it's clear when you look at them, if you go to their site, it's, it's, it's pretty clear that, at least in my opinion, their focus leans definitely on the graphic design side of things. Not necessarily the UX, UI, or product design, or branding. The lower tier type of design work. And this attracts a certain type of client. For them, it's probably more business coaches, blogger moms, lots of local shops. Not too many SaaS or technology companies I'd be willing to bet. DesignJoy, on the other hand, focuses almost entirely on landing pages, branding, and product design. So I don't get too many clients coming to the door that want anything other than that and mix with my higher prices that lends towards getting a more high-profile client, which is great because these companies tend to have much deeper wallets and much bigger budgets. Lastly, let's talk about quality. You could argue this is perhaps you know, one of the more important features of the three mentioned here, which is uh, where I think I've placed the majority of my focus with DesignJoy and I believe has made probably the biggest difference in my agency. Again, if you compare DesignJoy to Design Pickle or Pinji, you'd have to be blind to not notice a, qual a difference in quality, or at least I would hope. That's why I'm able to charge what I charge and attract the clients that I attract. Now, the benefits of high-quality work, I think, are definitely clear to everyone listening, so I won't focus your attention there. But there's even some benefits, you could argue, to mid- or low-quality work, believe it or not. I mean, there's a reason why services like Pinji and Design Pickle have literally thousands of clients between them. And that's not because, or that's because not everyone's looking for top tier quality design work. A large fraction of the market, quite frankly, either doesn't have good taste or they're simply looking for what I call good enough design. They don't have the funds to pay for a top tier design agency that costs thousands of dollars per month for just some social media posts. So services like Design Pickle and Pinji fill this gap and they do it really, really well and then make a crap ton of money. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'll even go as far as say that if you're a senior level designer like me or video editor or developer or whatever, there's actually nothing wrong with going below that and offering a service beneath that. Especially if you want to target and work with a specific type of client because it's going to constitute the price that you charge. Maybe you like working with local businesses or you want to build out an overseas production team to handle all the work that comes in and Maybe achieving the level of quality or that you know you ultimately can provide um, is just out of budget or out of reach. You can build an insanely successful company and still not produce the best quality of work out there. It literally happens all the time. And in fact, it happens more often than the opposite. Design Pickle makes a lot more money than Design Joy, though I know that isn't the only unit of, unit of measurement that determines the health of a company. It's 
Worth mentioning though. For me though, quality was hugely important. It's one of the reasons why I continue to personally handle all the work for design joy myself, but if quality isn't your top priority and it doesn't need to be, that's okay. There's still an enormous market out there for anyone whatsoever. So I thought it's worth just spending a couple of minutes talking about who my customers are and you know, this I'm going to touch on this briefly in a, in a few sections here and there, but I do get the question, you know, who who's actually signing up for this type of service? And I think it's helpful to gain an insight on that. The short answer is there's a lot of people signing up for these services that are in different stages of their business from having literally nothing that's just an idea to companies that are, you know, bringing in 100 million plus per year. The customer base is pretty wide and depending upon the niche that you target or how you position yourself ultimately will determine who you end up working with. I've been fortunate to experience both ends of the spectrum. So I started out, my client base was pretty much all looked the same. They were usually like a few co-founders that had a platform idea or whatever, and um, they were bootstrapping and paying for for it all out of their own pocket. And they were usually, but at the same time, they were usually you know SaaS companies, B two B SaaS technology companies. Uh, that that made up the beginning portion of my customer base. But again, the key the key thing to note was they were they were pre revenue for the most part. Nowadays, my customer base has pretty pretty much widened um, in some in some degrees, but in other ways, it's, it's very much the same as it always was. So I'm still working with SaaS-based businesses, B2B. Um, and the difference nowadays is because I'm charging more, they, are, they definitely have, I guess, bigger wallets and uh, bigger budgets. $5,000 a month of them, for most of them, is not a lot of money. Um, they are not quite as needy as the ones on the other end of the spectrum. In a lot of cases, to be honest with you, they, you know, design is just really a very small part of their universe. It's something, yes, that they value, but they probably have 10 or 12 other initiatives going on outside of just design. So design is really attractive in the sense that it's a service that they can just keep on always and always have at the ready for when they do need it. But they're not necessarily trying to squeeze every little bit of juice out of it, unlike my earlier clients when I was charging less and working with pre-revenue companies. So in short, I guess the majority of them are technology companies. Now, I don't work with a lot of e-commerce clients. Uh, it's not something that I necessarily portray on my site that much. Um, to be honest with you, I'm not really good at it. So I don't work with a lot of e-commerce clients. I also don't work with a lot of like graphic design desperate clients as well. Again, it's not something I promote. DesignJoy tends to be pretty expensive for just graphic design. That's why I offer the premium tier stuff like websites, um, product design and branding that tends to attract those that actually have the, the finances to be able to attain that type of work and a senior level design quality. Um, so Again, that's, that's pretty much my client base. There's nothing really complicated to it. Now, that doesn't, sit, that doesn't, I don't mean to allude to the fact that there aren't 
customers outside of the technology SaaS world that are in need of a service like this. But I thought it was worth just stopping for a moment and telling you who my clients are. Um, Because I think a lot of people are curious. There's one overarching theme really throughout this course from start to finish. It's keep things simple. I get asked this all the time. How on earth do you do what you do? How is it possible? I don't understand. And it's a fair question to ask because if we take what we know about how businesses run, the processes behind them, it really doesn't make a lot of sense, especially when you apply it to a design agency. But that's only because design joy isn't run like any other business. And there's many examples that I could give, but I'll just share a few of them here. Let's start with my web presence, my website. All it really is is a single landing page I stood up in Webflow in just a few hours. There's really nothing fancy about it. You won't see any any case studies or even my portfolio just links out to a Figma doc, which it seems like I've made famous at this point. I've never written a proposal in order to win clients. I've, my scope of work is already defined, so there's really no need for this. Onboarding basically doesn't exist. Clients sign up themselves on the site, make their way into Trello, and begin requesting design tasks. There's no calls or meetings even necessary. In contracts, I don't use them. I've never used them. I Even though I charge a minimum of $5,000 per month, uh, never had a problem since design work is paid up front, which is a key advantage of running this service like DesignJoy. Communicating with clients is kept at a minimum. Most of the time, design requests are completed without any back-and-forth communication, and there's no meetings or calls for any reason whatsoever. And perhaps most notably, I've never hired help for DesignJoy in any capacity. I just do all the work myself. And I could go on and on and on, and it's safe to say that pretty much everything I do, I've done the opposite of of how I've been taught to do it. And guess what? It's working. (laughs) By not getting caught up with those things that I mentioned which literally happens to 99.9% of us, I'm essentially able to devote nearly all of my time to generating actual output for clients, not just words or meanings or ideas, like actual design work. And I'm able to generate design work at a pace that other agencies can't comprehend. The good thing is, though, that's not only a win for me, the actual product or service, but it's a win for my clients because I'm able to deliver more to them in a more timely manner. So it's a win-win. I mean, again, to sort of make this really concrete and practical for you, let's talk about, you know, the difference between design joy and a traditional agency when it comes to onboarding. So a traditional agency, let's put yourself in the shoes of someone looking to seeking, you know, design help. So you go to an agency you typically, there's this infamous get started, or, or not even not get started, and this infamous get in touch or contact us button, which I have such a disdain for. I, f- I feel like it's <laughs> just, just so, so wrong. Um, or there's this form that you fill out. In, in, either, in either case, you're going to end up filling out a form that gets to the agency. And they might, may or may not get back to you, but it usually takes a few days. That's when the conversation starts. Uh, you can go back and forth for you know a, a few days again, or weeks, eventually, if you are on the same page, you you know you schedule a discovery call, which basically just walks you through, you know how the agency works and, and talking about your specific needs and seeing if they're a good fit. So you're usually weeks into the process at this point, and then if you decide that that's who you want to move forward with, they'll often write up a proposal for you, which outlines the scope of work and gives you pricing. That usually takes a couple of weeks to do. And you're going to, you know, let's say you agree to it. Um, 
usually a few more weeks go by before they actually can start the work. So you're, you know, at that point, a couple months, two to three months in before agencies usually even put pen to paper and start generating actual design work for you. And that part takes sometimes months. So you could be six months, seven months in to get a simple website done through an agency. Uh, compare that to Design Joy. <laughs> you can have a website done in two weeks. You can sign up today, get started instantly. 30 seconds to sign up. Don't have to speak with me, don't have to book a call. In two days, I'll have you a homepage done. Two days later, I'll have a few more pages for you done. I might even throw in branding for you in that. And, you know, a month later, two, month, two weeks later, it's done. So which one, which one of those, assuming quality is the same, in, in a lot of cases, I think Design Joy is even higher quality, which would you choose? Especially if it was two, three times cheaper. Most of you, I would hope, would say Design Joy. And for that reason, you know, among many, is the low entry barriers were, were, was what grabs people. In other words, the time that it takes for you to actually receive value from a particular service is hugely important to people. And lowering that entry barrier as much as humanly possible, I think is where you should focus a lot of your attention. Packages are literally everything. They are what makes a product or service a product or service. So it's important we define them. And packages are typically presented in the same fashion that plans would be for software. They basically just tell the user, here's what you'll pay and here's what you'll get. Um, Just like you would if you sold a physical product. And without them, though, good luck getting clients. Now, we'll definitely talk about the pricing part of this later, um, which is definitely an important piece of the conversation. But we'll stay away from that for now. Just know that pricing should be there within each of your packages. First off, um, there's no right or wrong when it comes to how many packages you should actually offer. I've gotten this question a lot over the years. And I've personally offered at times one, two, three, I think even four different packages as my service has evolved. And you could argue that there's definitely benefits to keeping it simple and offering just a single package or there's benefits to offering multiple. It doesn't really matter so long as there's enough differentiation between them and the differentiation is very clear. Cause, but the important thing is, is that you just have them in the first place. Um, at DesignJoy, for example, I once offered a design package, which only included design tasks, and then I offered a design plus development package, which obviously included design and development. Today, I offer the same features or inclusions from one plan to another. There's no difference other than how I bill. Um, this is something that I'll change usually every year or so um, as I think about my business again and, and, again, continue to evolve it. But for now, I'm pretty satisfied with where I'm at. It's simplified my business a lot and simplified the choice from the from the end user's perspective and signing up, signing up, which is always a goal of mine. But I've also seen services offer just one plan with no alternative billing options, making the decision this that much easier. And I, you know, I, I'm a little envious of these companies doing this. But ultimately, you're gonna have to decide how many plans make sense for you. But as a general rule. If you're looking for one, which you're, if you're like me, you are, I'd say try not to have more than two or three. Try to have one if possible, two if not, and then three if not um, in that order. So ne- next, let's talk about the actual feature list or perhaps best referred to as the what's included list with air quotes. Um, 
There aren't too many rules here or tips I can give you. But the biggest mistake I see other services making is really their, their features being too vague. I'll give you an example. So I once had a coaching call with a person looking to come up with a and build a design subscription service like DesignJoy. And they spelled out their inclusions really, really well. It was, you know, your typical unlimited requests, revisions, two-day turnaround time. And then out of nowhere, just in they just dropped this out of nowhere, a line item was unlimited marketing requests. And my immediate reaction to them was, what the heck does that mean? Where did that come from? Marketing is such a vast word that it could potentially mean an infinite number of things. As a customer, it either tells me nothing or it leads me to believe that you really can do everything under the sun, which is never the case. So I challenge them to get specific. Maybe instead of unlimited marketing requests, they could say unlimited pay-per-click ads or unlimited social media publishing. You get the point. It should be ultra clear exactly what the user is getting when they sign up for a plan. Otherwise, you're shooting yourself in the foot. And this happens so much, it's insane. As far as the number of features you should showcase, again, there's no hard and fast rule, but if you're looking for a number, I'd say between five and eight. Not so little that it seems at first glance like you aren't really delivering that much value, but not so much that it's overwhelming and makes the decision harder. So not, But not everything needs to be listed there, just the important stuff like how many requests they get per month, how many brands are they limited to, if they are at all, um, how many users they can have, if they can cancel any time, that sort of thing. And I'd say if you if you need direction for this, just look around. Um, there's a website called servicelist.io, which congregates all products and services. I would recommend just clicking through as many as you can, seeing how other people do it, look at DesignJoy. But again, ultimately, it's up to you. You really can't go wrong here. As long as you define your packages, have clear uh, pricing and, and clear inclusions, so you're going to be fine. So despite what you've read or been told, there is no magic formula when it comes to what you should charge for your services. And wherever you start is, I can tell you unequivocally, it's going to be different than where you end up. It's just part of the process. So for me, when I launched DesignJoy, I didn't have the luxury of looking at other services uh, you know, and, and simply basing my prices off of them. There wasn't anybody productizing what I was productizing. I was the first one to sort of do it. So um, I didn't know what people would be willing to pay for it. I didn't even know if people would be willing to pay at all for it. So my mentality at the time was, I'm just going to be less focused on what the right amount to charge is and making sure that I'm charging enough and instead just focusing on my attention on getting customers. And I believe that's where your focus should be too. And what's the best way to get customers? Provide 100 times the value of what you charge. So I started insanely low. My launch price for DesignJoy uh, was $449 a month, which is quite a step down from what I charge today, which is $5,000 a month. But I felt like I needed to prove myself and prove that people were actually willing to pay this. And my fear and, and, a, and a very common mistake that many people make was aiming too high. And I felt like if I did that, I wouldn't be able to prove the model properly because 